0: I'm reading Matthew 17:24 through 18:14. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two-drachma tax went up to Peter and said, "Does your teacher not pay the tax?" He said, "Yes." And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first, saying, "What do you think, Simon? From whom do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others?" And when he said, "From others," Jesus said to him, Then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea and cast a hook, and take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth you will find a shekel. Take that and give it to them for me and for yourselves. At that time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. it is better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into the hell of fire. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish.
1: Some of you have heard me tell before of the young woman who went to her pastor and said, Pastor, I have a besetting sin, and I need your help. I come to church on Sunday, and I can't help but think that I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. And I know I shouldn't think that, and so I need you to help me with this. And the pastor, in his great wisdom, smiled warmly at her, and he said, Don't worry, dear. In your case, it's not a sin. It's just a horrible mistake. Friends, we all think more highly of ourselves than we should. I'm the prettiest girl in the congregation. I'm the person most concerned with holiness in this congregation. I'm the most gracious person in this congregation. I'm the most knowledgeable person in this congregation. Friends, this is called pride. And pride breeds comparison. And such comparisons cause division. Church family, understand that the greatest threat to the unity of the church will never come from out there. It will always come from in here. The greatest threat to our unity is not without, it's within. The greatest threat to unity is pride and the comparison that comes with it. So Jesus, who is the greatest among us? Now, in Jesus' day, just like today, people lived in a world of comparison, where they were always clamoring over one another to be the greatest, the most likes, the most followers, the most shares, the most invitations, the most celebration, the most exaltation. The greatest then, as today, was measured socially by social position. In fact, later on in Matthew's Gospel, we're going to hear Jesus speak about the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew 23 verses 6 and 7 saying, they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace and being called rabbi by others. Friends, we love it. We love to be the greatest. And Jesus' disciples know that in every kingdom, in every government, in every social system, there is some kind of hierarchy. So Jesus asks Jesus, Jesus, What about your kingdom? Who's the greatest in your kingdom? And Jesus answers them the way that Jesus always answers them. He turns expectations on their head. Four times in verses 2-5, through we hear the word child mentioned. In response to His disciples' question, He gives them both a verbal and a visual rebuke. Because he actually brings in a living sermon illustration and has a child stand amongst them and declares in verse three, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus here tells his disciples, It's not just they who need to turn. You need to turn because you're heading the wrong way. You're climbing up. So turn and get down. Become like children. Now, friends, Jesus doesn't have like a romanticized view of children. Our culture is incredibly child-centric. We put the child at the center of everything. And friends, while children are a gift from the Lord and they are to be cherished, our culture today really glamorizes and even idolatrizes children. We say all kinds of things about kids. And our child-centric society has elevated children and childhood in some almost unhealthy ways. But in Jesus' day, children were not at the center. In fact, children were silent. You've heard the old adage, children should be seen and not heard? In Jesus' culture, the children weren't the focus. They were actually on the fringes. So in Jesus' society, children had no status. They had no power. They had no honor. They had no glory. So when Jesus says you need to become like a child, He's not talking about some kind of romantic view about the sweetness and the innocence of children. He's saying, if you want to become the greatest in my kingdom, humble yourself. And become like the least. The less. The unnoticed. The little one. The child. Because that That's what greatness is in my kingdom. And church, the truly shocking thing about this statement is just how serious we hear Jesus about humility. Did you notice the warning at the end of verse 3? Verse 3, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never, never enter the kingdom of heaven. Church, that's a serious statement. If you don't humble yourself, you will never enter the kingdom. Friends, who else does God say will never enter the kingdom of heaven? You know, later on in, in Paul's letters in 1 Corinthians 6, he gives a list of sins. He talks about sexual immorality, idol- sexual immorality, idolatry, adultery, homosexual practice, stealing, dishonesty, drunkenness. And at the head of that list, he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Church, do you consider pride to be in the same category of seriousness as sexual immorality? Because Scripture says that either one, unrepentant pride, unrepentant sexual immorality, will prevent you from entering the kingdom of heaven. In fact, you might even argue that God considers pride to be more serious in some ways than sexual immorality. Jesus goes on and teaches in today's passage, in Matthew 18, verse 4, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So the humble are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, but nowhere in the Scripture do we find whoever is most sexually pure is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now friends, I'm not pointing that out to diminish the seriousness of sexual sin. I'm pointing that out to emphasize the seriousness of pride. Because we do not take pride anywhere near as seriously as Jesus seems to right here. Pride is that serious and humility is that essential for kingdom people. Church, we just don't take pride as seriously as Jesus did. Truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Of heaven. And friends, what does it mean to become like a child? It means to be humble. And what is humility? What is humility? I really like C.S. Lewis' definition of humility. He wrote Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. You know, because you and I, you and I would never in so many words say, I want to be the greatest. But naturally, subtly, and sometimes even overtly, we shove others out of the way. We take the spotlight for ourselves. Naturally, we don't harmonize. Naturally, we monopolize. But humility is thinking of yourself Less. I mean, it's not some manufactured demeanor or pretense or pretending. Okay, family, you can take it down. We, we already made past that quote. Humility isn't, isn't manufactured. It's not just pretense or pretending. I mean, not, humility is not denying reality. It's not lying about who you are. It's not downplaying your achievements. Humility, friends, is ultimately not about you. Humility is your chosen disposition towards others. Humility is not about you, it's about your disposition towards others. Humility is thinking about yourself less so that you might think about others more. Now, I know I've told this story before, even though it was not one of my best moments. I don't remember what I'd done. I just remember that Leah was mad. Really mad. And justifiably mad. And I remember her asking me, why would you do that? And friends, to this day, I still don't remember what the that was. But I do remember that my response was something along the lines of, well, I just wasn't thinking. And Leah shot back, you just weren't thinking about me. And she was absolutely right. I don't remember what I'd done. But I am certain I'd only been thinking about myself, what I wanted, what I felt, what I thought I needed. I was considering myself greater. I was considering myself first. And I'm certain I had not thought about her, her needs or how my actions were going to affect her. Because naturally, friends, every single one of us does that. Every one of us thinks about me first, me greatest, because, friends, I am the greatest in the little kingdom that I'm building. But it's not that way in Jesus' kingdom that He's building. In Jesus' kingdom, the one that He's building, the kingdom of heaven, it is not for those who think about themselves greatest who think about themselves first. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. And friends, even though they were really, really, really slow to learn, the disciples eventually got this. Because we hear the Apostle Peter much later on, near the end of his life, write in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, Peter says, "...clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble." And friends, the word that Peter uses here, clothe yourselves, it was actually the the word that you'd use for, for tying or girding on, like you'd tie on an apron, like a servant would tie on an apron. And so I imagine Peter writing this and thinking, just as I remember Jesus tying a towel around His waist so that He could serve us by washing our feet. So, clothe yourselves, tie humility around yourself so that you can serve one another. And friends, the language even of binding or tying on or clothing yourself reminds us of an important point about humility. The humility with which you and I need to clothe ourselves doesn't belong to us, it's something we have to put on. You see, Jesus is not just calling his disciples to be countercultural, Jesus is calling us, his disciples, to be supernatural. Church, you must bind on to yourself a humility that is not naturally yours. You must choose daily to clothe yourself with Jesus Christ and with His humility and bind it on to yourself. Because humility does not come naturally to us. What comes naturally to us is pride. Me greatest, me first. Pastor C.J. Mahaney wrote in his book on humility, The real issue here is not if pride exists in your heart. It's where pride exists and how pride is being expressed in your life. And church, every one of us should ask the question, where is pride right now being expressed in my marriage? Where is pride being expressed right now in my relationship with my children? Where is pride being expressed in my online relationships? Where is pride being expressed in my face-to-face relationships? Where is pride being expressed and acted out in my relationship with my brothers and sisters in Christ? And then, church, we must daily choose to clothe ourselves with Christ and with His humility. O Spirit, come make us humble, is what we prayed in song this morning. Jesus, make us like children. Humble us. Humble us towards others. That we might not seek to be the greatest, but that we might become like the very least. Because Jesus is teaching us here, friends, that in the kingdom of heaven, little ones are a big deal. Little ones are a big deal. And Jesus moves from, in verses 1-4, through what you and I are supposed to be, church, to how we're supposed to treat one another, starting in verse 5. Starting in verse 5, he says, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Church, When you're evaluating someone for leadership, always consider how they treat children. When you're evaluating someone for leadership, always consider how they treat children, because children have nothing to offer. They bestow on us no status, no standing, no riches, no wealth. Children do us no favors, and in fact, they kind of expect favors done for them. Children are at best an inconvenience to what you hope to accomplish, and often they're a plain old nuisance. So when evaluating someone for leadership, always consider how they receive children. And church family, a couple months ago, a couple months ago, I put out to you the call because I was looking for men who were willing to do child care on Thursday mornings during the women's Bible study And church, do you know who responded to that call? Your elders did. Your elders. Church, the very men that you recognized and you charged to lead this church, to shepherd this flock, they weren't too important to receive children. I have watched personally Dan Smiley and Brian Vandenbrick and Charles Coulson and retired pastor Steve Burkett Playing trains on the floor of our nursery with these children. They were receiving the least of these in the name of Jesus Christ. And church, you know what that says to me? You chose your leaders well. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. Now, we need to note that as Jesus continues teaching, He is making a subtle shift in these verses. He he does shift from just talking about how we treat children in general to specifically how we're going to treat one another within the kingdom of heaven. You see, Jesus is concerned with how we treat the least of these in the kingdom. We see here predominantly in verses 1-4 through the language of child. He uses the word child over and over again. But then shifting in verse 6, we hear the phrase, little ones. Verse 6, verse 10, verse 14, little ones. And friends, who are the little ones to which Jesus is referring? In verse 6, He says, A little one who believes in Me. A little one who believes in Me. So this is not the first and the only time in Matthew's gospel where he talks about the little ones to describe his followers. In fact, we heard him a little bit earlier in Matthew chapter 10, verse 42. He said, whoever gives one of these little ones, even a cup of cold water, because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. And later in the Gospel, we hear, uh, we'll hear Jesus teach in Matthew 25, verse 40, And the King will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did to me. So, friends, Jesus is shifting from talking about how we treat children in general to how we're going to treat one another in the kingdom of heaven, and specifically, how are we going to treat the very least? of these in the kingdom of heaven. The little ones, not just children, but the very least. Because friends, even in the kingdom of heaven, you and I are tempted to disregard others. We are tempted to be blinded by our own perceived greatness. We don't consider others. We might consider them less than or little ones. But Jesus makes clear, church, Jesus makes clear how important our relationship with one another is supposed to be. And he makes that clear by how dire a language Jesus uses in the rest of this passage. Verse 6 again, But whoever would cause one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now friends, the, the word here translated as cause to sin is the Greek word skandalizo, which is where we get our word scandalized. And it's that same word that's repeated multiple times. We find the word in verse 6, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. Clearly, Jesus' concern is that we not scandalize, that we not cause to stumble, that we not cause to sin the little ones in the kingdom of heaven. Friends, it's the exact same Greek word that the Apostle Paul picked up later on, And he used, when he wrote to the Romans, in Romans chapter 14, verse 13, he said, let's not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide to never put a scandalizo, a stumbling block, or hindrance in the way of another. And then he wrote later on in Romans chapter 16, verse 17, he said, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, watch out for those who cause divisions, And create obstacles, scandalizo, contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them. Church, we need to be seriously concerned with how our words and our actions are affecting one another. Especially the least of these. Because what Jesus is emphasizing is that the kingdom of God is not about me. It's about us. It's about Him. Every little one in the kingdom is a big deal to God. And a millstone, he says, a millstone around the neck awaits those who put stumbling blocks, hindrances, divisions that lead others away from Christ. In fact, judge the judgment, a millstone around the neck cast into the sea, friends, that is the same judgment that is promised to Babylon. The enemy of God's people. A system in rebellion against God faces the judgment in Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. The same fate of a world in rebellion against Christ is promised. To those who would scandalize and cause to stumble little ones in Christ. Church, we have to confess. We don't take unity and our obligation towards one another anywhere near as seriously as Christ commands us here. This is a terrifying passage. Friends, do we weigh our words that carefully? Do we consider our actions and the effect that they have on one another so earnestly? Church, we have to confess how callous we've become to sin in our midst and sin in our lives and grieve how careless our words and our actions have become, how selfish our beliefs and behaviors have scandalized others and how we have caused little ones to stumble, to sin, to walk away from Christ. And church, it should not be. And I wish Jesus would just let up. But He doesn't. And He continues in verses 8 and 9. He says, If your hand or your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life crippled or lame than with two hands or two, and two, or two feet and be thrown into the eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Throw it away. It's better for you to enter life with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into the hell of fire. Church understands this is metaphor, but it's not hyperbole. This is metaphor, but it's not hyperbole. He's saying that extreme danger calls for extreme measures of escape. Jesus is using language to make clear that we are to take whatever measures necessary to deal with sin in our lives and sin in our midst. And we know that Jesus is not calling us to actual self-mutilation because a blind man can still lust. A person missing a hand can still sin. But Jesus is forcing us to ask the question, Church, how far would you go to preserve your spiritual life and not just yours, but the spiritual life of the little ones around you? In 2010, the movie 127 Hours told the true story of mountain climber Aaron Ralston, who, while he was hiking in an isolated canyon in Utah, had a boulder crash down on his arm and trap him. And for five days, he was trapped there, recognizing he would never escape because his arm was pinned down. He actually cut off his own arm with a pocket knife and then hiked eight miles out of the canyon and was rescued. Because he realized, if I'm going to live, I have to take extreme measures, or I'm going to die. And church, how far would you go to deal with the sin in your life that threatens to kill not only you, but to scandalize the little ones in the body of Christ? Friends, you wouldn't tolerate just a little bit of cancer in your body. You would go through drastic surgery. You would suffer through radiation and chemotherapy. And even though they would make you terribly sick, you would go to extremes until that cancer was completely, absolutely eradicated from your body so that your life might be saved. And Jesus is asking us the question, church, are you willing to go to such extremes to protect your spiritual life and to protect the spiritual life of those around you? Because the consequence of not doing so is dire. Twice. Twice here Jesus warns of hell. Of the eternal fire. The Greek word Gehenna meaning the valley of Hinnom. Friends, it was a valley south of Jerusalem where the faithless kings of old sacrificed their children to demons. And in the time of Jesus, it was a perpetually burning garbage dump which came to be used as a symbol for the place of divine punishment. Jesus says, thrown into the sea with a millstone, thrown into the eternal fire, the message is the same. Church, do you take sin seriously? Because your sin affects not only you, but those little ones in the kingdom around you. And woe to those. Woe to those who scandalize, who cause to stumble the very least in the kingdom of heaven. Because little ones are a big deal to Jesus. Church, we have to confess, we don't take sin anywhere near as seriously as Jesus does. We don't cut off sin. We coddle sin. We try to manage sin, but we don't die to it. We'll minimize, we'll rationalize, we'll justify our sin, but we don't repent of it. Friends, sin is a cancer in the soul of our lives and the soul of our church. And untreated cancer always metastasizes. It spreads. And Jesus says it needs to be cut off. And if you allow that cancer to spread and to infect the little ones around you, woe to you. Church, what sinful attitudes are you right now coddling? What bitterness are you clinging to? Unforgiveness, slander, jealousy, pride. What sinful actions are you hiding? Pornography, adultery, dishonesty, slander. What sinful ways are you minimizing? Gossip, greed, lust, arrogance, self-righteousness. Jesus warns, cut it out and cut it off. Because your life and the life of the church depends upon it. Because these little ones are a big deal to God. And Jesus drives the point home by talking about how much God loves the little ones in verses 10 through 14. However, Jesus' statement in verse 10 has generated lots of confusion over the years. He, He says in verse 10, he says, See that you don't despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who's in heaven. Now, Jesus is not teaching that each person has their own guardian angel. And neither is Jesus saying that the little ones who die become angels who then see the face of the Father in heaven. No, no, no. Rather, we find in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14 that angels are ministering spirits sent to serve the church. So Jesus Is emphasizing here that the presence of angels, the presence of angels who watch even the least amongst God's people, emphasizes just how important they are to God. Friends, if somebody arrives at a party and they're surrounded by bodyguards, or if somebody shows up at the party and they have a great entourage who follows them, what do we assume? Well, we assume they're important. And Jesus says, the mighty and powerful angels, my angels, who see my face, they concern themselves with the very least in the kingdom of heaven. And shouldn't you be so concerned for them? If the angels are concerned for them, why are you not? Jesus says, God is like a shepherd who would lead the 99 to seek the one. And He asks, well, what shepherd wouldn't leave the 99? All of them. Friends, losing one out of 100 is not a big deal. Why would you abandon the 99 to, to animals and to predators to chase after the one? You wouldn't. You'd lose the one. You'd let him go. But, God, but Jesus says, God's not like that. He chases the one. He chases the one because the one is so precious to him, because little ones are a big deal. To God, are you so concerned about others, about the little ones in the kingdom of God? Church, this passage is horrible. I fought and I labored this week to write this sermon, not because the message is unclear, but because the message is too clear. Because the more that I wrote, the more that dread fell upon me because it became more and more abundantly clear to me that, friends, we do not value the unity of and purity in the church as much as Jesus does. I found myself wanting to water this passage down to find loopholes, maybe keep it on the surface somehow, hold it at arm's length from me and from us. But Jesus' words here just keep cutting us to the heart of our own apathy and our lethargy. We don't take as seriously as Christ does the call to unity and the call to purity. I do not value the little ones as much as Jesus does. I do not fear sin like Jesus tells us to. Church, this sermon brought me no joy to prepare. Because this passage is a terrible a terrible mirror, and it reveals to us the horror of what we have become. And, church, the longer that I wrestled with this passage, the more the despair rose. And my only hope, my only hope was the gospel. My only hope was the gospel because as my and our failures became clearer to me as I studied this passage, the mercy of Christ also became clearer to me. I was overwhelmed by how far I and we have fallen from what Christ calls us to here. But then at the same time, church, I found myself overwhelmed by God's grace. And I rejoiced. I rejoiced that we are about to come and celebrate together this meal. Because, friends, this meal that we are about to share together is a meal that testifies to our unity. Our unity is God's people because from the least to the greatest, we are going to gather around this table where God makes us one. We share one loaf. We drink from one cup. We are one body of equal value and equal concern. And more than that, this meal testifies to us of the purity of Christ. Friends, His blood has been shed that our sins might be forgiven. In His death, He took my guilt my shame, my sin, my apathy, my self-righteousness, and Christ was cut off from life so that sin might be cut off from me. Church, this meal proclaims again what we need. The Gospel. It proclaims the good news that little ones like you and like me are a big deal to Christ. Such a big deal that though we lambs strayed, He pursued us. And He gave His life to purchase us for His own. And He rejoices when we turn to Him. Church, this passage is a mirror that reveals how far short you and I have fallen. And this meal declares just how far down Christ has come for us. And it reminds us just how high Christ will bring us by faith if you and I will trust in Him. So if you're here today, and you've never put your trust, your faith in Jesus Christ and what He's done, friends, let this be the day. Humble yourself before the Lord, and He will lift you up. And church, let us ask the question, how is He humbling you right now? Where right now is He convicting you of pride? How will you love the least amongst us? Because little ones are a big deal to God. And church, will they be a big deal to us? Let's pray. Father, thank You for the table that we're approaching now. We approach it by grace. And we thank You for that grace because we recognize that we have fallen short. Terribly short. Oh Father, we do not love one another the way that You've called us to. We do not value one another the way that You value us. And we certainly do not fear sin the way that You've called us to. Father, forgive us. Forgive us because of what Jesus Christ has done. And as we gather now around the table, unite us not just to you, but to one another. As we gather around the table, remind us of the forgiveness that Christ has come to bring us. As we feast upon your body and your blood, Father, strengthen us. That we might resist sin. That we might be transformed. And that we might become more like you. So that we too might love the least of these. In Jesus' name we ask this all. Amen.